This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Defense Department is out with a brand new cloud computing strategy, and this time it goes far beyond cloud, dubbed the software development strategy. It's also meant to fix long-standing problems with how DOD buys and develops software, and it makes clear that leaders have a lot of work to do on the policy front in order to move the military's vast development community towards agile development practices. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has been covering the new strategy release, and he joins me now. And Jared, what do we know about this? How does it tie software and cloud into one kind of overarching strategy? Yeah, they they explicitly say that this this is an update to the 2019 cloud computing strategy, which at that time really was just about cloud. But what DoD leaders are telling us is that they realized pretty soon thereafter that that those prior strategic documents didn't really address. What do we do when we get to the cloud? So that's that's a big part of what this document tries to do, tries to capitalize on how much easier it is to develop software in an agile fashion once you are in the cloud. And the changes on the software front really are the standout to this new document. It really makes a big deal out of the relative few software factories that there are throughout DOD, throughout the military services. There are, I believe, 29 right now. And defense leaders say that in order to even stand those up, they really had to make exceptions to policy. So they were the exceptions to DOD's normal rules. Now they want those to be the rule. They want software, those software factories to grow. They want to scale them up. They want to integrate them into a more cohesive, what they call ecosystem, so that they are just sort of the default way DOD does software development in the future with these factories sharing common platforms, eliminating redundancies between programs, making sure that you're not any longer developing software in, uh, you know, siloed stovepipes program by program, but sharing code across the military services from application to application and, and just being able to move faster for all the obvious reasons, all the, all the obvious benefits that that gives you. And this would all be hosted in the cloud, which in a way sounds like the original cloud deployment way back in the early days when DISA had a development-related cloud. Yes, they did. Um, but it was – I think DOD's ambitions for this are much bigger. So it's not just the integration of these scaled-up software factories together. It's also a big reliance on enterprise services in the cloud for all of these things so that it's not just, okay, we have a cloud over here that you can use for development if you want. It's, again, sort of the default the default approach. I think this is going to take a while to get stood up, partly because of just the the old habits of mind that, that really persist throughout the DoD information technology community. Stovepipe waterfall development has been around for a long time. It's in a lot of people's heads. It's just the way things have been done. So the next steps here are within 180 days, there's supposed to be an implementation plan drawn up, and that'll start to get toward really the specific actions that DOD thinks it needs to take to make this a reality. I would say the strategic document that came out last week really is an identification of problems, and, and the next step in that 180 days is going to be, here's how we intend to start solving some of those problems. We talked to Daniel Metz, who's the Deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise, and one of the things I asked her is... How prescriptive does DOD need to be with the military services and other defense components in order to get them to not just scale up these software factories, but actually use them rather than continuing to build their own infrastructure and own software? And again, that waterfall model. Here's what she said. I think the department shies from doing mandates. What we really want to be able to do is ensure that um, that we set the conditions so that people could be successful. And if we haven't set the conditions, there's really no need to mandate because you're not you're not providing anything that anyone's going to use. And so that's the sweet spot I think we need to work 
towards. And this memo allows us to at least uh, be officially recognized that this is where the department wants to go. Here are the key players in terms of making that happen. Um, and then we're just going to have to let the governance work, the governance, continue to have that partnership um, across the board with the leadership of the ANS, RNE, and, and DOD CIO. And again, that's Danielle Metz, the Deputy DOD CIO for Information Enterprise. So again, Tom, I think for now at least, it's seeming to be a lot of more carrots than sticks in, in terms of getting people to actually use these software factories. But we will we'll know a lot more in about six months when the actual guidance comes out. Any idea on how this will affect federal contractors that develop software for DOD because a lot of them use what they are told to do and that still might be waterfall? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's that, that's another thing that I think is hard to tell right now until we start to see this policy development effort come into play. And, and, and I should have said earlier, there are really three prongs to this new strategy. One is the, the cloud stuff and moving everyone to a, a common set of infrastructure over time. The second is the, the growth of those software factories. The third is really a, a broader policy development effort and acknowledging all the things that DOD is going to have to do in its own documents and possibly even working with Congress to change some laws. Some of that has already happened. A really big thing that happened sort of in the wake of the release of the 2019 Defense Innovation Board software study was DOD, as part of a rewrite of its overall uh, acquisition instruction, the 5000 series, created a dedicated software pathway within that instruction. There had never been anything like that before. The, the, the guidebook for everything was a system that was developed for military hardware, and, and for obvious reasons, software doesn't fit very well into that. But I think, you know, depending on how successful this effort is, the, this move to factories is going to have a big impact on industry. And and one of those impacts, I think, is likely going to be there's going to be less overall lines of code written because there will be more reuse from program to program. Jason Weiss is the DOD chief software officer, and he talked a little bit about DOD's ambitions on that front. When we look at a lot of the core capabilities across these software factories, let's just start with code, source code management. Uh, Do we need every single software factory to go out there and procure and manage and operate their own source code repository? I think those are examples of where we can actually start to see economies of scale in terms of both operational capacity and cost reductions for the department across these software factories take hold. If we can achieve that, then that allows the software factory ecosystem to continue to grow but to operate with higher degrees of, uh, of scale and precision without having to start from scratch at every point. Jason Weiss, again, the DOD chief software officer. So I think that gets to at least part of your question, Tom. It, it may be that overall there is more software developed in a quicker fashion throughout the department, but but less actual typing on keyboards to write the same code over and over again, I think is at least part of the hope. Sure. And a final question Does any of this have any effect on the pursuit of commercial cloud computing multiple award contract that DOD has been pursuing? It's interesting. The strategy itself does not mention the joint warfighter cloud computing contract, but it does say explicitly that there is going to be a multi-vendor, multi-award philosophy and approach as DOD lays out this infrastructure. And it, it really strongly hints that JWCC 
is not going to be the end-all, be-all. There are going to be multiple cloud contracts out there. There is going to be an effort to harmonize those, make sure that you only have the, uh, the, the contracts that you really need, that you're not doing a lot of contract duplication. But, of course, JWCC, we have already been told, is only sort of an interim step. There will be another procurement in a couple of years uh, to do another big DoD enterprise-wide cloud contract. And we'll have a better sense by that point of whether some of these smaller military-specific cloud procurement vehicles are, are, are still allowed to exist. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was a leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education she was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? 
I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, 
Let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the the art of of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, And I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it, it you were amazing and it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said because i could see all of that reflected in how you responded there and um make one other quick uh comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. It's a well-known fact that good sleep leads to a happier life. Okay, maybe that's not a fact fact, but... Don't you just feel amazing after a great night's sleep? Like the first night back in your own bed after traveling. It's time to demand more first night back kind of sleep. Stop tossing and turning and talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day. And visit SeizeTheNightAndDay.com to learn more.